Our scripture tonight is uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the faith, as a minister, you'll recognize the name. You might recognize it, you might not. But Jonathan Edwards is one of my favorites, one of my favorites. Real, had deep influence on me in my thinking, and, and, but not really, not really on my preaching, I don't think. And the reason I bring that up is, is because of a very famous sermon of his that became, actually it's so, it's so famous, it became a work of literature itself, and it's taught in every major university, and every, every curriculum of, of American literature will teach it. It's a very famous sermon called Sinners in the Hand. Of an angry God. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was up in um, Yale uh, with a friend of mine. He was a pastor. His pastor right there, to the, to the Yale campus. Well, and there's a there's a um, collection of all of Edwards's um, handwritten notes and everything. Everything Edwards is in a collection at Yale, and we got a chance to see it. Got a chance to see it up t- up close. I actually got to look at the crib notes, the little notes he used for sinners in the hands of an angry God. And I remember standing right there, and we weren't supposed to touch them. And I was just so wanted to touch. I just wanted to touch something Edwards had touched. I'm standing, and I didn't do it. I'm proud of me. I didn't touch it. I was so tempted to. I couldn't believe I was looking at his crib notes. Well, this sermon, by the way, precipitated one of the greatest revivals in our history. Something called the Great Awakening. I mean, the Holy Spirit just took control of America. It's funny. If you read reports of, 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 our, of, of what was going on at the time, I'm not even kidding. It's kind of funny. You'll hear, this is the report. Public drunkenness and lasciviousness and nudity and sexual, uh, sexual congress is, is ripe. Everybody, and it, it's, it's so funny. You hear him describing it, and you're like, it sounds like Golden Gate Park. It's really funny. It just sounds like nothing has changed in all the centuries since then. But nothing has changed. <laughs> Now, tonight, tonight I want to look at the, uh, that, that, that phrase in verse 3, by nature, children of wrath. Wrath. And what I want to do is I'm going to look at this, this idea of wrath in the Bible. Take a look. At what, we opened worship. So I, I crafted the, the scriptures for worship this morning. And the opening psalm is one of the most beautiful poems in the Bible, Psalm 90. It's one of the only poems we know of that Moses himself wrote. This is 4,000 years ago. I mean, 4K, guys. That's a long time ago. Listen. I thought there was something kind of telling. Listen. Take a look with me if you want. Listen to the question. There's only one question in the whole poem. But the question that happens right in the middle. It's at the end of the second stanza in our, in our translation. Who considers the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear do you? And you know what's funny when I was reading that question? Man, things have not changed. (laughs) 
Man, things have not changed. Do you know, I don't know if you know this or not, but the anger of God is one of the most unpopular negative theological concepts in all of the Bible. <laughs> it is so wildly unpopular to talk about this subject. It is, you know, I, I get it. Just having, all right, let's put it this way, guys. And picture like I'm, I'm looking down my week or I'm thinking, thinking I'm going to teach on this. I've got wrath of God on my mind all I get why people don't want to think about this. My point is, if you're thinking about it all week, I get why people don't want to think about this. It's heavy. It, you know what it had an effect it had on me? In answer to that question that Moses asked 4,000 years ago, nobody does. I don't. I don't walk in a way that considers the fear due to God because his anger is real in the world. I don't think that way. You think like that? Do you wake up thinking like that? You, is, there a, is there something in the back of your head? You're driving down the road and you get angry. Is there something in your heart or anything as you look at sin that you kind of go, well, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. What about the anger and the wrath of my God? I'll venture, you may have never asked yourself that question. I mean, that's how far from our thinking it is, right? We don't think like this. And, and Moses is bringing it up because Moses, look, you know, Moses, the, these men, they talk about things that they have personally experienced. Moses is talking about himself, not just the people around him. He knows himself how the fear of God did not haunt him, did not possess him. At the age of 40, he took a man by his hands and squeezed the life out of him. That's somebody who didn't know the fear of God at the age of 40. We ask the question, who thinks like this? And, I, and so, you know, to, almost 400 years ago, Jonathan Edwards does a sermon, and, it's, and it, today it's still a question. Who thinks like this? Who, who asks these questions? And who, who is willing to do the work? Uh, I want you to do the work with me tonight. I, the Holy Spirit, we're going to need you. I don't know, I don't know how, I don't know how receptive, you know, a lot of, you know what I started thinking about when I'm talking about, preaching about anger? First thing I started thinking about, Chris, watch your tone. Because I kept thinking, I, I have a very expressive tone, right? But if I'm going to preach about anger, I've got to be careful not to be the angry prophet, right? <laughs> I don't want to, that's not going to be helpful, I don't think. But it, it, it made me aware of it. Like aware. Like, okay. And I, and I feel very sober-minded about it. Like, I, I feel very, very clear, as it were. But it's funny, it's not merely a modern issue, is it? No, it's a heart issue. Gosh, the fear of God has even become a, a meme in our culture. I was looking to see where fear of God has ever come up, or the wrath of God, and I, I found a place. I found a place. Dan Aykroyd, when he's trying to make the argument for the apocalypse that's descending on New York and Ghostbusters, says to the mayor, this is real wrath of God type stuff. Wrath of God. So the wrath of God enters into a movie as a meme, as a joke. You see, that's how, that's how far removed we are. I don't know if you're familiar with, Monty Python used to love to play with this one because a lot of young boys raised in the Church of England would read all the, do all the old, all the old, um, all the old uh, songs. And one of the ways they make fun of the anger of God is all these children singing, don't bake us, boil us, or burn us in hot fat. Don't, you know. 
And it's just making fun of this idea of the angry God. Mocking those who would fear or speak of it. So I was just, I've been thinking about it. I've been thinking about how I'm going to preach everything. I do want to say one thing at the beginning, and maybe this is something that you and I should be saying in our hearts and out loud too. But I, I want to make something very clear right at the outset. I wasn't sure it would be here even. I am not apologizing for anything tonight. I can't, I, I have this fear. I, sometimes I, have you ever noticed I'll do this when I want to get close to somebody who doesn't agree with me? You'll even hear me doing the pulpit and I'll, I'll, I'll say something funny for a preacher. I don't like this passage, you know? And that's, that, I do that in order to get us thinking, in order to play the game because I know how we think. But I don't want to do that with this. Not when it comes to God's anger. I, I guess what I'm saying is, sorry, not sorry. And that's really how we have to speak to the world in this generation. We have to say, sorry, we're not sorry. We're not ashamed. We, we cannot be ashamed. We cannot retreat. And we cannot hide. God is angry. And that's what the scriptures teach. The thesis for tonight is this. We must come to grips. We must come to realization. We must come to grips with the perfect, holy, and righteous anger of God. We must meet it. We must meet it. We must meet it sincerely. We must see it, because I think seeing it and seeing it is also to hope for us. Maybe, Father, maybe, maybe, Father, maybe, maybe even awakening if He is so pleased. So let's go into it. I'm going to take three different, three different tacks on this as we kind of come into the text. As you'll see me, it's kind of a familiar style for me, but I'm going to look at the words, the word here, and the words used in the Old New Testament. Then I'm going to look at the, 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 the kind of the stories, the broader biblical, we call the whole counsel of God, how important it is with this subject, the whole counsel. And then finally, I want to talk about where the rubber hits the road. Where can we point at something and say, aha, there's the judgment of God. There it is. I see it. Can we do that? Can we? Should we do that? Let's, let's see. Let's see where we get with this. Let's see where we go. So the first thing is, the first language. Language is such a wonderful thing. Language! <laughs> Old Testament language. For, for God's wrath, though. Oh, I love it. It's onomatopoeia. Actually, the, the, the word, the most commonly used word for God's anger in the Old Testament is off. It's the word for snorting out of your nose. And the idea is of God snorting in anger. Like, it's just this, it, that, that's the picture of anger, a snort. Like a rage. Of, when somebody, have you ever seen, my, I remember my dad, when he got anger, I could hear the nose, his, his air expel from his nose. You could hear it, like, oop. We're in trouble now. And so it's interesting, one of the core, the core words for anger in the Bible, the core words for anger for God, has both, uh, has such a practical, down-to-earth, tang tangible, audible as it were, uh, real and very personal word, isn't it? It's not, not abstract, is it? One of, the word, one of the problems with the word anger is it's an abstraction. It's not practical. Off, though? Well, that's, that's, <laughs> we know what that is. We know what that is. Isn't it almost sound disrespectful to talk about God snorting? But the other words are like breaking out or flying out. 
Another word for anger is, is heat. For some reason, in the, in the Hebrew language, the word heat and anger are constantly put together. Hot anger, burning anger. And you hear that a lot in the language of the prophets and the poets of the Old Testament. And this old, this, these Old Testament words, well, the thing that I notice right about them is that they have to do with tangibility. In fact, I will claim this, the fact that God is described as a snorting nose is just a tiny promise that he will become a human just like us. These are like little, they're like little droplets in the Bible of like little hints where these images capture him because he would become a man. But we're here to look at these words so we will understand God more deeply and more sincerely and more fully. We have to understand how to describe his anger. So we're coming to grips with the perfect, holy, and righteous anger of God as is expressed in our Bibles. The New Testament word's kind of interesting, though. So the New Testament word that you're looking at right there, you'll recognize it right away. We have, we have, we have a derivative word. It, this word being used in this text in Ephesians is the word orge. We get the word orgy from that. And this idea actually comes from a, a word that was described in Greek, uh, orga, or, we got, I don't know if it has to do with organic, the word for organic or not. But when sap is pushed up through a, a flower, that's orge. Something that's pushed through, that has to come out, that's forced out, as it were. And that's, that's the root of the word. It, became the, it became, came to be used of anger in general, eruptive anger, something erupting or bursting out. But you know what's really interesting about this? All the Greek words not used for God. There's tons of words for anger. <laughs> there's, there's anger is hate. Anger is implacable rage. Anger is bitterness. And you, it's interesting to watch these. See, Paul's not a Greek speaker. He's a Hebrew speaker. He picks his Greek words very intentionally and doesn't pick the, one of the key words used in Greek mythology for the anger of the gods. Doesn't even touch that. He goes for this word, the orge, the forcing out word. I think for a reason, because it resembles so deeply the Hebrew idea of breaking out, the flying out. But I would go a step further. The words can help us understand them, but even more so, especially in Hebrew, it's the word pictures. What do I mean by word pictures? The favorite and metaphor for rage and anger in the Bible, especially the Old Testament Hebrew, is as a liquid. It's really kind of, it's kind of, it's very, it's, I don't know what, where it comes from, but a liquid. Think about it. You pour out anger. You can be filled with anger. Um, in the Bible, it was said that we are caused, that the, the nations must drink from the cup of God's wrath. See all these images? These are all word pictures where anger is fluid. This idea of bursting out. Sometimes it's a hot, fiery kind of burst out, almost like magma or something like that. It's a picture of lava or something. But it's very rich, very potent, very electric, very active. Not, not, not abstract at all. Word pictures like fire, uh, storm, and these kinds of things as well. But why am I bringing all this up? I'm making a claim. If you know your Bibles, you know God is angry. <laughs> I was reading that one of, one, of one, of, one of my go-to uh, study practices is to always observe and always read the theological dictionary of the New Testament. It's a masterwork. It's sometimes called a uh, Kittle. The, the, the abridged version was called Little Kittle because it's Ed, 
it was edited by some guy named Kittle. And I was reading the, the entry for Orge. I was reading the entry. Now, I'm very, I am very careful with these guys. More, and I, I used to encourage my friends to be careful. A lot of people will drink from this stuff uncritically. You can't do that. The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament was written mostly by people who don't believe in God. You have to be very careful. A lot of them don't. A lot of them have a real problem with God. So I'm reading along. I'm not even paying attention. I'm just, when, I, when you do this, I read as a reader. I read as a learner. I don't read as, to criticize the text right away when I'm learning. I'm just, I'm just there to receive, right? So I'm reading through, and I see the word sinister. This sinister use of the, and I'm like, I would never describe, that's, is he saying God is sinister? I just keep reading to go down. I go down to the next paragraph. They, you know, oh, the, the sinister God. And I'm like, what? I, mean, I keep reading, and he goes, there's no way. And he, this was his final quote, one of his final quotes. It is impossible to read the scriptures and not be confronted with the demonic character of the inner heart of God. I was reading it, and I'm like, oh, and I finally, when I finally read that, I went, oh. <laughs> This guy does not agree with me. He does not believe in the same God I believe. He does not believe in what my God has said about himself. So much for great theologians. It was, way to, it, it, it was jarring. It reminded me. This is not just an academic problem, is it? It's a personal, cultural reality as well. The angry God makes people upset. And this academic was no exception. He was willing to scuttle all the scripture to say that God had a demonic heart because he couldn't stand the idea of a God being angry. What, why, why is this? Why is it? I'm trying, I was trying to think about it. Why is it? Why is it? Why is it so? Maybe it's this. If you were to find out, if you were just to find out tomorrow morning that I'm mad as heck at you, I mean, I'm so angry at you, you heard that, I was spitting, spanking your name. Now, you probably, what would you respond to that? You might be afraid. You might, more than likely though, if you're like me, you just get angry back. Well, why is he angry? He's angry. He has no right to be angry at me. I'm angry at him. It's just kind of a natural response we have sometimes to other people being angry. I think that might be a part of it. But as you kind of explore the contours of the, of the wrath of God, you begin to see things. You begin to understand something. That this is, there's something about who God is, who God is at the cross, who he is in Christ. Christ warns us. There's an offense here. There's something just gratingly offensive. Because the idea that God is angry means that you have caused him to be angry. Because you are so wrong. Because you, this world, this generation, this time, humanity, under the wrath. Well, whatever the cause may be, whatever the psychological reason may be or practical reason, people raise their fists quickly and get very upset about this, whether academically or personally. I've never understood it. I think I finally got it, though. And, I, and this is my first, I want to end this first point about these words with this truth, because I, I think it's really precious. I think the reason that Fichtner, that, that, that theologian, and many people have a hard time with this, is that they don't grant the one thing the Bible teaches that is so revolutionary. And that, that is, God is a person. You don't realize how mind-blowing that is until you get close to it. Because you see, we, don't, we would never, ever tell a person they couldn't be angry, would we? We know that persons can often have very good reasons for anger, right? Very good reasons to be angry in the world. In fact, even as I think of God as a person, 
I would venture, given what happened in that Texas town last week, that if God's not angry, he's not paying attention. He is paying attention. He is angry. And I personally don't understand why, why people are offended by it. Unless in the end they thought they should be God and should decide wrong from right. Maybe the anger is that he didn't do something about the Texas shooting. I don't know. It's still angry as it is. But this refusal to let God be a person means they don't understand who he is. And that being is part of the right and function and truth of being a person that you have anger. Part of, it's part of the matrix, right? It's funny. So if we, if we tease this out, we'll find jealousy, anger, and hatred are all attributed to God. There's a way you can be all those things and be holy and perfect and righteous. Wow. Behold, your God. I, I want, I'm presenting to you what, what, the, what our God's really like, right? He's a person, and he can be offended. But that, let's, flip that, let's just flip that for a moment. He's a person. He can be known. He can be remedied. He can be, he can be, he can be reconciled with. Like, person, persons can be reconciled with, can't they? I mean, it's not a force. He's not gravity. You can't reconcile yourself to gravity, can you? Can you make peace with gravity? No, you can't. Gravity's just going to keep pulling you down no matter what you do. Ah, but you can make peace with a person. And you see that just as we learn that it is a personal, the snort is this idea that God takes his offenses personally, that means there's also a personal possibility of love. It must be so. Persons are persons, aren't they? Don't persons act the same? Once God is a person, you can, I mean, you got, I think, honestly, if you share this with people, that God is a person, people just don't even want to say that. They never even conceive of God that. God is always and relentlessly abstracted into some weird other, never just a person. Seek him personally. Let's go on now. What about the whole counsel of God? Why do I bring up the whole counsel of God? I am claiming that for us to come to grips with the perfect, holy, and righteous anger of God, we need the biggest view. Now, this is what this is, y'all, is, you know, there's nothing better... What we needed, we, need, we needed a space station view of, of, of the Bible sometimes. It's just what we did. We need, and one of the coolest things, one of the reasons I would pay a lot of money, if anybody wants to sponsor this, they can, to go to space, is I, well, first of all, I want to float around. But second of all, I, wouldn't it, be, I, it would be amazing to see the curvature of the earth, actually see it, wouldn't it? And there are the pictures. There's a, one of the, I'm going off topic here, but one of the first guys to do a spacewalk do you know what he said when he came back in? He said, I remember coming back into the capsule, and at right that moment as I entered the capsule, I realized I would never see anything so beautiful again for the rest of my life. He said, I was sad. I realized I would never behold such beauty again. He said, I didn't want to come in. Ooh, it gives you chills. I think we can get that view of our Father. And I think that's why the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation are presented us the way, the way they are. Now, what am I talking about? We must regard the wrath of God in its context. 
and we won't understand who God is. In fact, one of the reasons we have to look at that, we have to back up and look at the whole scripture, is because God is even bigger than the scripture, right? And if we're going to get any view on who God is at all, because we're not big enough to observe him, but if we get any way we can get a view on him, it's, it's on all of his words together. And all of his words together, that's where the payoff really makes sense. So I began with the thesis that everywhere present in the Bible, across from the Old to the New Testament, God is described as angry. Old and New Testament. Now, but the second thing I want to say is that God is not merely angry. <laughs> and I, that sounds silly, but it, it, a lot of this has to do with ways we think about God, the way we box him in, the way we think, and the way we, the way we limit. And one of the things that's being described here, oh, let's, let's take a look at all the different, there's a whole bunch of this in our, in our text today. But take a look, I, it's kind of cool. It's just in the language of Ephesians itself. Take a look. We are by nature, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now listen. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved. Now, within two verses, love now is twice as present as the word wrath. Already. I mean, we're only, we're only a phrase away. He's already talking about love with which he loved. He's already doubling down. Oh, we can go more. 20 times in this book, he will plumb. He will talk about praying to know how amazing God's love is. He will talk about agape transforming everything. He talks about wrath twice. He mentions love 20 times. I think that's a glorious proportion, don't you? But I want you to hear something here, though. And I think this is really true. I think this is part of what happened with Jonathan Edwards in that amazing preacher, in that amazing moment of awakening. Because when we do grasp that God is angry, the abundance of his love, it's just, it's just incredible. <laughs> what? I, I, Paul just talked about us being children of wrath, and then he can't, he wants to talk about God loving us and loving us the way he's loving us. And he, it's like he's loved times, he's love squared. He loves us with the love. He's loved, but he's loving us with that love. And he's so fully engaged. <laughs> what a wonderful picture, right? All of, a sudden you're, all of a sudden now, as we back up in the Ephesians, we're now 20 words of love for two words of wrath. We back up in the scriptures. It's the same thing over and over and over again. Oh, yes, it is. Open up your, open, go, 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 go to your uh, worship, the very first, the very first, the very first uh, part of worship was with Moses on the mountain with God, and God reveals himself to Moses, and he prose before him proclaiming, and this is what he does to Moses, y'all, what I'm about to do to Jack. He covered, he won't let Moses see him. He won't let him see him, right? He protects him. All these ideas are happening here, but that's the idea that God must judge if you behold him, but he's protecting him at the same time. Well, look in the text there. The Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, showing mercy to thousands of them that love me. Keep my commandments. There's one line, though, at the end. What does it say? I never clear the guilty. You just talk about, do you see the proportion? <laughs> if you look at it, the way it was actually written, the Lord, the Lord, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, keeping loving kindness, forgiving rebellion, and then one line of what? Who will by no means clear the guilty. 
what is existing in this little text here? The proper proportions, you see. We must speak of God's wrath. Why? Because when we do so, we will then be in a position to talk all the more about his love. You see, that, that's, what, that's, what, that's what understanding his wrath does. That's what it beckons you into. Because now you understand that his love, it comes from a tremendous place. It comes from, and, and all of a sudden, the possibility... I'm, I'm, I'm hoping, I'm hoping, Father, that your spirit will do this. For us to be, as we see wrath or hear about it or fear it, to, to know that that's just the beginning word. Because it's like God saying to you, Ted, you know, I was very, very angry with you. And then every word after that, but this is how much I love you. Did I tell you how much I love you? I love you so much. I love you more than, and just going on and on and on. It's funny. After that first statement about how angry he is, all those statements of love are that much more precious. What? Oh, it keeps going. Uh, we can see it. It's more. There's more of it. There's more of it. Even in our text here today. Uh, if we go down to the. Oh, that's enough. That's enough for today. All right. But oh, I want. I want to show you in one more place. But uh, I'll show it to you in a second. One of the things that's happening here in this proportionality is a model for how we understand God. Now, I, I, I have often, I've done this on whiteboards before, and we're just a small group, so I just wrote it out in my book. But this is a model for understanding God right here. You see this? I know it's, it's, not, it's not much. You see this is an intersection of, of actually, what is it, one, two, three, three lines, four, three? I thought there's a fourth one there. I didn't name it. And it's the intersection of these lines. The east line has an arrow on the other end, implying the third eternal. And I see, see the eternal intersection of all these lines. I've labeled, I've labeled three of the lines. I've labeled one peace, one love, and one anger. And what I mean is, this is an abstraction of who God is. And what I mean by this is, I want you to hear the idea here. God is all things that he is, eternally, fully, at once, right now, forever. All at once, perfectly together. In complete unity. There's a movie out right now called Everything Everywhere All at Once, exploring the problems of the multi-world of the, the, uh, the metaverse. And it, it's kind of capture some idea of us ever being able to do this. This is who God is. And the reason I love this so much is these proportions are ways for us to get inside these, get inside who God is, and understand how he could be all these things at one time. <laughs> There's a lot of paradoxes in here, aren't there? How can you be both love and justice? How can you be both anger and pity? How can you be, how can you be those things? But he is all that, all at once, eternally, right now, forever, and has always been, and always will be. Praise him. War without end. Yeah. This model, and I say this respectfully, this model, is just a, it's, a, it's an intellectual model, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a thinking model for how to think about God. It's meant to say this. No part of God is greater. No, God can't have a part greater than another. Do you get why? Because he's eternal. So you can't have one part bigger than another because then you can't have one. They're all parts of him are eternal. All together. Okay, why, why, this, why this version of God? Why take all this time to do that? Well, so that you can see how Jesus captures all this. <laughs> um, this is where grace comes in. Every week, I, when I do the table, you notice this moment where Christ says, um, 
he takes the cup. He says, this is the cup of the covenant. And this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. I'm going to do that tonight with y'all. And that's an invitation to act out your faith in Jesus, right? To act it out by taking the, the blood and the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the flesh of Christ and the, and, the, and, the, and the bread and the wine. Now, fast forward about an hour after Christ did that meal. He's still talking about the cup. Do you know what he says this time? Papa, please, 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 please. His stress increases. He is so worked up, his actual pores of his forehead begin to sweat blood. Because you know what he keeps talking about? The cup. I don't want to drink the cup. If this cup can pass for me. So there's a cup of wrath and there's a cup of blessing. But the Bible never makes a distinction between them, really. And the cup of God's wrath for you is the cup of blessing. You get it? Because it's the cup Christ drank. It's the cup you drink. He's the cup he drank for you. Now get this. If a cup can be a cup of judgment and a cup of salvation, do you see how they both represent all the eternal reality of God? All bound up in his eternal who he is? So Christ can act that out. Christ, in real time, as he's, in, as, he's, as he's with the disciples, the cup is life, eternal life. And the cup, as he drinks it, will be life, eternal life for all of us, the cup of God's wrath, right? As that becomes the cup of the covenant for him. And now he drinks it to the dregs, so we don't have to drink it. Praise him. But even then he says, you will drink of the cup I drink. Remember that? He does say that later. We will drink parts of it. The cup image is so powerful. But you see how it could be both a blessing and a curse at the same time? Because depending on how you meet this God and all of his grandeur and perfection, he is either your best friend forever or what? Your judge. Angry. Forever. Wow. There is this inter eternal intersection of all of God's attributes in harmony and unity. Praise him. But let's go a step further. Let's come to grips now in our practical experience. Can we describe, can we point the finger? There is the judgment of God. I see it. It's on him. It's on her. Can we do this? And should we do it? There is, a, this generation, I don't know where this comes from. There's a whole bunch of people that really groove on the judgment of God. They like it. They like it a lot. It's kind of like a badge of honor. It's something they want to poke people with. It's something they want to shout at people. And let me tell you something. The prophets never, ever, ever act like that. The prophets weep as they bring the story of judgment. Anybody who revels in the idea that God's going to get those bad guys for you, that's nothing to do with the Spirit of God. And that is really a satanic masquerade. It is not godly. It even says that our Father takes no delight in the death of the wicked. We had nothing to do with that. But we must not hesitate. Because the first answer to that question is yes, everywhere, all at once, all the time. You ever gotten a cold? You have suffered under the judgments of God. 
My father died a couple months ago. You know what that was? It was the judgment of God. All these things, all this misery, it's, that's all, it's all the judgment of God. That's why you don't point it out. <laughs> because it is universal. All the suffering, woe, and death, and destruction that you have ever tasted, and all the woes you have drunk, they were because God's judgments in the world. We taste I even ask God this question. I don't understand you saved my mom and dad. Why do they still have to die? Because God's a judge. And they have to die in their sins to be raised to eternal life. Yes. Everywhere, all the time. This is why, um, this is partly why you need to be so careful about pointing out God's judgments. Be very, very careful. Because you exist under them too, right? And we all must wrestle through them in the suffering of this world. There's a reason why Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is being revealed, is put in the present tense. <laughs> it is always present. Always available. That's generic. That's a generic truth I just gave you. And it's an important one. Because everybody in this room stands in the need of the blood of Jesus and knowing God. To be reconciled with this God personally. To, to get past the snort. To get past the fear of his anger. To get past to the offering of love in his son Jesus. And his love advertised over and over again in the Bible. His arms are outreached with love. But, um, but we have to get serious about this. One of, the, one of the reasons it's important for us to understand the generic nature of judgment is for compassion on our just generation. All around us are the marks of God's judgments. Praise him. He's holy. Now, what about specialty? What about you see somebody, ah, that guy and that people, or Ukraine, or China, or America. I would counsel tremendous hesitancy. Although we know God is keeping a running tally, he is, he tells us, he's watching, he's peeing track, he's noting down everything that America does, everything that Italy does, everything that Russia does. There's, a, there's some sense in which God has a scope and a range that he knows, but he does not share that with us. We don't have a prophet's appointed in this generation. Not like that. To call out the nations one by one. That was God's work at a time. We can go back to those expressions. We can go back and warn the nations. If you ignore God, here is your peril. It's in our Bible. We can do that. We can warn the nations and tell them, if you do not submit to God, you will suffer all the terrors that come with how destructive that can be. But we do not get the chance to say, thus saith the Lord when it comes to the judgments of others, on them in particular. I think it's forbidden from us. I think, because I think this is, the age, this is the age where we preach Christ and Him crucified. We preach the freedom of the gospel. We preach the wonderful availability of Jesus. Knowing full well that nations will be judged for racism, oppression, thievery, injustice, cruelty, unfair laws.
Make no mistake, the scriptures are clear that God is keeping track and he will judge all things. After all, don't you know we're on a timeline? The coming day of wrath. Everywhere, all present across the Bible is a reference to an oncoming day, a coming day. It says the day approaches, right? The day, the day sometimes it's just called. It's the day of God's wrath. And it's coming. But finally, what about his church? I don't know. I don't know if I'm wise enough to answer this yet. Maybe when I'm older. I do want you to notice something. One of the most interesting things about COVID to me was it became very aware to me. I know a lot of people want to think about maybe what God is saying to this generation or to our country. But I remember the passage from 1 Peter where he says, judgment begins in the house of God. And one of the things I shared with Ted and with Corey privately, I haven't shared it in the pulpit, but I will share it, this, I will share it tonight for, you, for your consideration. God sometimes talks about being tired of the worship of his people. It happens in Isaiah. He's like, I'm tired. I'm tired of hypocrisy. I'm tired of your false, your syncretism. You try. And there's all these certain things that people of God will do that trigger a strong reaction from God. Trampling on grace, hypocrisies, syncretism, trying to mix Christianity with other faiths. There's certain things that seem to trigger. I mean, read the seven letters to the seven churches. God is paying attention to what the churches are doing. And our church is doing too. One thing I noticed about COVID was that it seemed to me, and what I wrestled with was God, our Father, I was reminded of Isaiah where he says, I tire of your Sabbath gathering. Remember he says that to the people of Israel? He says, I'm tired of them. I'm going to send you off into exile because I'm so sick of your false worship. The only thing I observed about COVID was that God did not, our Father did not seem to seek or want our worship for almost two years. That's the part that bothered me the most. I put it before you because I just, I, I fear God. <laughs> I want you to too. We should all, we should all. I guess you know what I want to do? I, can you hear it? I want, to, I want to answer the question from the poem. I want Moses' question to have some purchase with you and, you and me in our hearts. I want you to hear him standing here right now, because like, he stands in glory. And I want to hear him say, Do you consider? Have you reckoned? Do you live in the light of? Do you understand the preciousness of grace? In contrasting with the fear due him in his wrath. Um, yeah. I want to close with this. Um, Jacob Deeroff was um, one of my elders in Atlanta. I led him to Christ. I haven't even met Jacob. I don't know if you guys met him at the wedding or not. Um, very, very good friend. He said, Chris, I, I've always wanted you, I've always wondered if you would think about this. 
He asked me to do it specifically. If I would read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God and perform it, essentially, as a sermon. He always thought that would be really cool, given my personality. <laughs> I think he was kind of, he had this picture of me, like probably raging crazy. But you know what's funny about that? Do you know how, do you, do you, do you, there are reports of how, of how, of how Jonathan Edwards preached that sermon. And I told, told Jacob that day when he asked me to, he asked me if I would recite or, or read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I've seen the manuscript, I told you. Little crib notes. This is how he preached at his pulpit that Sunday. Just like I'm doing right now. Couldn't see very well. Spoke in a monotone. Your life is as if you were living in a room. Imagine a room before you. It's your life. And this room is filled with rotten boards. At any moment, you may step on a rotten board and fall through. This room with the rotten boards is positioned above the lake of fire. This room with rotten boards is your life. As you walk through your life, you may at any time step on a rotten board and fall. Your life is like this. You are standing above eternity and the lake, and the, and the, and the, and the lake of fire. At any moment, you may fall through your life is by some accident and fall into judgment. If you have been a good person your whole life and have done many good things, that is like hoping for a spider web to catch you as you fall. It said that people began to weep and roll in the aisle. And cry out fear. We're all far too sophisticated for that. But may God do a great work among us, right? A great work of a people who do not apologize for and understand and reckon with the beauty of how God loves them. They cherish it. Let us be these people. Why? Because we have come to grips with the perfect, holy, and righteous anger of our Father. Amen? May we may, may the Holy Spirit do that in our lives, we pray. Let's pray. Hear us, Father. Hear us, we cry, we cry, we cry out to you. We, we ask that you would make these truths clear to us. And you just renew our joy. I, I mean, I, Father, I, this is the first sermon on anger I've preached in many, many years in your anger. and I think that's an appropriate proportion, Father. And we do need a little bit of We need this in our lives. It's in the scriptures. It's, you reveal it to us. Will you help us if some of us bristle, if some of us get a little angry back? <laughs> you forgive us for that? We were raised in a very, very rebellious time, Father, and and I, I asked to ask you, you would, you would have mercy on your church having a hard time understanding this because so many lies have been told and so many people don't understand who you are. But Father, would you forgive your church for forgetting this and, and understanding it? And, but would you, would you share with us by the Holy Spirit a vision of you, who you are? I, I, Father, I, 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 even as I'm praying for myself or my people, 
and asking for you to let them uh, understand what your anger is. I asked that would be a prelude, though, <laughs> to, to understanding how loving you are. Would you reveal, Father, if you're going to reveal some of your anger to us and its truth, would you reveal even more how much you love us? How consumed you are with, with love and care and attention to us? How we are your cherished? And <laughs> Help us to get that proportion that's in Ephesians. We can take one look at your wrath and take ten looks at your love. <laughs> but help us to look at it nonetheless, even when we don't want to. To hold in our hearts that we worship an, an awesome God. A holy God. Father, in your anger, I pray that you would not discipline us in anger. And I, and I would turn away from any anger you have towards the church and this generation. Remember your promise of love to us. Remember, Father. Remember how love, your love outpaces your anger everywhere you share it with your children. Completely. So, Father, let it outpace it here. <laughs> I ask this very week for the, to be charmed by your love, all of us. To, to be aware and filled with new joy in our salvation. Because our, our dad was angry, yeah. But he loves us so much. <laughs> I thank you for the reconciliation forged in Jesus. Amen. On the night he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread and he, and he broke it. He said, this is my body which is given for you. Take and eat. In the same way, after the meal, he took a cup. He said, this is the cup of the covenant. This is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You know, uh, I've already made my point here, but... but um, there is a moment when you get that idea that this is the God who loves us so much he gives his son. And this is the God who is so angry at sin he receives his own son's blood. What kind of God have we come to worship? Wow. I encourage you, if you know God, if you're a sinner and your trust is in the the love of God and the sacrifice of Jesus, then this is your table. You need to fear no anger from this God. No, his anger is put away forever. There's no hand raised against you any longer. You are loved and freely received. He took out all that anger on his own son for your, for your sake. When you receive him by faith at this table, you are insulated forever from that eternal anger. I want you to come. Come with joy to the table. Come with joy and freedom and faith and hope. <laughs> right? This is yours. But, you know, you can see why it's so important that if you're, if you're a faker or if you're like, don't really believe or if you're just posing or if you're a skeptic, it's best you just watch. <laughs> when God reveals himself to you, you'll know it. He'll, he, he knows how to reveal himself. I've seen him do it. He will reveal himself. But 
If you don't know God, or even worse, even worse, the worst thing you could do, the very, very, very worst thing you could do would be to come to the table of communion because you think you're a good person. That is one of the things that God promises he gets very angry about. People, men and women who think they're good people on their own. Does not make our Father happy. So, but enough of that. That's the bad news. That's not what I'm here to share. I'm here to share good news. So if you're a sinner, get to this table. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> All right. Um, let's stand. Let us proclaim to each to the other the mystery of our faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Praise him. Tell me, brothers and sisters, First Presbyterian Church of San Francisco guests, what do you believe? We believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, and he descended into hell. But the third day he rose again from the dead, and he ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. It's our custom now that you come forward and you, in, by intention, which you're going to illustrate beautifully for everybody, the body, blood, and the Lord, as we uh, sing our final song. Come. 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 His anger has been put away forever. Praise Him. Praise Him with the highest praise. In Christ alone, alone His anger has been put away forever. My dear sister. He is my light, my strength. He put His anger my away song, forever, brother. This cornerstone, this solid ground. He put all that anger away forever. Firm through the fiercest drought and storm. When I pass of love. He put his what anger away forever, your daughter of God. When fears are stilled, when striving cease, he put away his anger forever, your daughter of God. My Praise all him. in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. He put away his anger forever in Christ you, alone. God. Come, who took on see. flesh, God is good. fullness of God in helpless babe. He put away his anger forever, brother. Righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save. Tell me on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. He put away anger forever. Yes, we do. On him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. There in the ground. His body lay, fullness of the world of darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious day. 
from the grave he rose again And as he stands in victory Since curse has lost its grip on me For I am his and he is mine Bought with the precious blood of Christ No guilt in life, no fear in death this is the power of Christ in me. From mother's cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. I ask for this blessing on your heart. Buoyancy. I mean buoyancy, joy, freedom, new excitement, a restoration of your joy in your salvation. Why? His anger's been put away forever. <laughs> There's nothing left for you or me. Praise him. Go out in that joy. Go. I ask for this blessing from the Holy Spirit that that joy would find you Wednesday. <laughs> and Thursday morning, and find you when you're sulking, and find you when you're afraid, and find you when you're, when you're doubting. And may all glory, honor, dominion, and power and praise be to such a God. <laughs> God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. World without end. Amen and amen. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy 